So the reading this morning is a short one. It's from Matthew chapter 6. It's about fasting. This is Jesus speaking. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, you have received your reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And you and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Amen. Well, good morning and, uh, and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Great to have you with us as we um, open God's Word. And if you are new to either this church or to church generally, it's so good to have you here with us. And we hope as you are, whether you're investigating Jesus or looking to reconnect with your faith, that this morning will be helpful in that. And um, I just want to double down on Mark's invitation as well. That we have newish right after this. Lunch is provided, a free lunch, who can say no to that? But even if it's your first week, you are welcome to come. It's for you. As a chance just to connect in with community a bit more, get to know some people and what City Light's about. So we'd love to have you with us. But thanks also for being here, whether you're a member uh, who is here and connected in and serving, or this is, you've just come along since we've been to the high school. It's been a fun adventure so far. And as we go, as we say each week, as we get used to this space, we'll just tweak a few things. Last week, if you were with us, you noticed we made one slight adjustment. People were taking too long to leave, so we set off a fire alarm <laughs> to get all of you out of here on time. Just too much of this, right? Just get out. Um, but uh, hopefully this week we won't be setting off any fire alarms, but who knows? It's exciting, right? It's an adventure. Uh, and it's great to be, able to be down here as we step forward into this new season in church life. And it's been great at the same time to be diving into the Sermon on the Mount. And if I'm honest, when I got to the beginning of this week to prepare for this particular section, I did have some amount of, I don't know what you call it, preacher's regret or something. When I saw this small section, I thought, why did we carve off just this little bit to speak on? But as I've dived into it and seen the richness of God's Word, I can see why it would matter that we would not miss this section of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus teaches on something that seems so obscure, like fasting. Because what the question really is in this passage is to ask, do you really love God or do you just love him for the things he gives you? In fact, how do you know if you really love God for him or you just love God because of the gifts that he gives? I want you to imagine a situation with me that may not be that hard to imagine. Let's imagine that you're at work and there is one person at work who you find particularly difficult. Maybe it's that kind of person who every time you try and introduce something positive to the conversation, they've got a nice negative spin on it someone who's got a hot take on something every new morning, just someone that's just, it's difficult to kind of get deep into discussion. It's the kind of person that you're moving on from conversation quickly. You try to be gracious, but again, they often bring the conversation down. But then one day, they mention in passing that they've got tickets to fill in the blanks, right? Backstage pass to your favorite band, box seats to the footy finals, whatever it is. And they say, do you want to come with me? And you kind of do the math, the pros and the cons, you're like, it's still stacked way in the pros, I'll go with you. But then on the day, the Bondi cluster has expanded, the event gets cancelled, and they come up to you and they say, ah, oh, bummer, it's been cancelled, but um, where do you want to go for dinner then? Now what do you do in that situation? You either, you, you can't say I'm busy tonight, they know you're not busy, right? You had plans and it was with them. 
And so if you say, I can't make it tonight or I'm not feeling that well or whatever, you're going to make it clear that you don't really like them and you don't really value relationship with them. You only wanted what they could give you. But then if you say yes, well, you're in for a long night. And I imagine most people, I think, would probably go with just do it. At that point, you're in and you might as well be. But it's funny, isn't it? Because the reason we feel uncomfortable about that moment is that it would expose in you the, the reality that you don't value the person, you only valued what they could give you. And as long as they were giving you that certain thing, you were happy to be in relationship with them to some degree, whatever you want to call it. But the reality is what you wanted was that thing. And if you could have got it without them, you would have. So here's a question. How do you know if you love God or you just love the life that he's given you? Do you really want to know God or is it really a kind of divine fire insurance? Maybe you're kind of vaguely superstitious about life after death and so you're like, ah, oh, gosh, I'm not sure that there's nothing on the other side. So in order to be sure, I guess I'll be in on this Christianity thing and I kind of want to make sure that I'm okay in that, in that regard as well. Do you really want God or even when it comes to heaven, do you really just want to be somewhere where good things are? John Piper, who's formerly a pastor and a theologian, puts it this way. He says, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth, with all the food you ever liked, with all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, with all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? That's a stark way to put it. Really, the question is, do you love the giver or just the gift? And I would say the people in this room in the most danger are those who would identify as Christian, but life so far has pretty much worked out how you thought it would. Job, career, marriage, vocation, house, holidays, travel, kids, all of it's kind of worked out sort of how you thought it would work out. Because it's very hard to tell if that's the space that you're in, whether or not you love God or you just love the gifts that seem to come from Him. And here, Jesus is going to give us one helpful way to know ahead of time, before meeting God face to face, to know whether or not we love the gifts or the giver. And it's in fasting. Fasting essentially is going without worldly enjoyment to enjoy God more fully. It's going without worldly enjoyment to enjoy God more fully. In one sense, it's giving up the gift in order to gain the giver. I didn't go with that for the line because it's too Dr. Susie, right? But you, can't, you get the idea. Fasting is when you give up some worldly enjoyment to more fully enjoy God. And it's a way of knowing whether, it, whether or not we love God or we love the gifts that he gives. So I'm going to pray that as we open this text that Jesus will be speaking to us directly. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would be revealing hearts even this morning. We know that it says in your word that the heart is deceitful above all things. That often the person we most deceive is ourselves. And so we ask that your truth and the light of your truth would pierce our hearts this morning. That we would see the very intentions and desires of our hearts. That we'd feel with conviction the desire to grow in our love for you and to repent of where we have loved things that are less than you. And Father, we ask most of all that we wouldn't be a people who just love your gifts, 
but who love you, that know that the highest privilege of the gospel is to know you and that we would want to commune with you and enjoy you as our creator and maker. We pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, our series is called The Way of Jesus because it's all of Jesus' life and ministry and teaching as recorded by Matthew, a person, a tax collector, who in his time was a hated type of person. And we're going to meet him just on the other side of the Sermon on the Mount. But he has written down this account of Jesus' life. And it's, it's, uh, uh, for us, it's Scripture. It's God speaking to us. And we're in a section called the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching on a bunch of different things, different areas that will affect what it means to be his disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. And really, in some ways, he's laying out to a crowd who want to follow him to say, look, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to be like. And here, Jesus lays out some of the most radical and world-changing teachings in all of Scripture. And this section is no different. We're in the section that's kind of a trilogy of teachings. Jesus has this way of teaching where it goes in patterns. And the pattern for this section that we're in is he's talking about hypocrisy versus authentic Christianity, authentic following of Jesus. And the pattern is this. He says, don't do this like the hypocrites, but instead do this. And the first week we saw don't don't give to the poor like the hypocrites do. Don't make a big show and dance about it. Don't let everybody know, hey, look, I'm being really generous to the poor. He says, do it in secret. Do it when no one else sees except your heavenly Father for the sheer enjoyment of just doing what delights him. And then last week he says, and when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites who love to be heard for their long speeches and their long soliloquies and they pray on the street corner so that everyone will see them and praise them for being really great prayers. He says, don't do that. In fact, go, go into the private secrecy of your own home and to pray to God when it's just you and Him. And in this week, He carries on on that theme when He says this. In Matthew 6, 16, Jesus says, And when you fast, do not be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. Jesus says when you fast. So he's assuming that his followers will fast. And of course, for the ancient Near Eastern audience that he was speaking to, for them, it was obvious what he was talking about. They were a community who did fast regularly. And he assumes that they understand that. But for modern ears, the phrase can be kind of a little bit confusing. The word literally... The idea of fast literally means firm or to hold firm. And I th- the idea by metaphor is kind of the idea of restraint. So you're restraining appetite, I guess. But the word in the Bible really meant something that God's people did when they were seeking God with particular intensity. So they would go without food, usually from sunup to sundown, sometimes for a full 24 hours, or in extraordinary circumstances, sometimes for days or even weeks. They would go without food but not water, generally. And sometimes it was to seek God's guidance or help. So in Ezra 8, when God's people are kind of at a crossroads, they want to focus particularly on God and to seek His guidance, so they fast. Sometimes it's in grief. In order to turn to God for comfort, in 1 Samuel 31, God's people fast. Sometimes it's in repentance, having acknowledged a great wrongdoing, either as an individual or as a community, that people will fast and seek God more intensely. But the common thread was to intensify communion with God. 
to draw near to God. You'd go without food in order to seek Him more intensely. And this is different to other religions. In some religions, you may fast because the belief is that pleasure generally is bad. And so you put off something like that because it's basically wicked and bad, and you fast in order to do what is good, which is to put off pleasure. In other religions, fasting can be a way of drawing near to God by sort of punishing yourself. I do bad to myself to show how devoted and committed I am to my religion, and that will please the God or gods. But this is not the meaning of fasting in Scripture. It's not to get God's attention. It's not to punish the self. It was simply to mitigate worldly desires in order to draw closer to God. But here, Jesus sees a wrongful use of it. He sees what's happening around him, and he wants to call something out in the faith community that he's in. Instead, he sees people that are seeking the approval of others. He says they're deliberately making themselves look particularly, I don't know, gaunt or something like that. He says they're disfiguring themselves to draw attention to the fact that they're fasting. Now, again, it's not clear exactly what they did to disfigure their faces. If you're like me, you're imagining like, yeah, you are, right? makeup under the eyes and like emo bangs or something like that and then that sort of thing. I don't know what it was, but he's obviously mocking here a little these people who are moping around, hoping to draw attention to the fact that people will notice that they're fasting. And he sees how desperate and kind of immature that is. To be like the kind of person who's like, what's that? Why do I look so gaunt? Oh, <laughs> guilty. Caught me out. I'm fasting. I don't know. I'm just I'm pretty devoted like that, I guess. So I don't know. It's embarrassing. But um, it's part of my life, I guess. And these people are going out of their way to kind of bring up in conversation or to have other people bring up the fact that they're fasting because it shows how devoted they are to God. And Jesus says, don't do that. That's not what fasting is for. It's not for winning the approval of others so that they'll think you're really godly and religious. And you might think, to modern ears, this sounds kind of crazy. Imagine fasting, going without food, in order to get other people to think more highly of you because of your religiosity. I mean, in a, these are two secular sins, aren't they? In a secular society, really denying yourself anything is one of the only sins left. But then another one on top of that might be getting people to think of you as more religious. That might be one of the other last secular sins. And so the idea that you would do both seems ridiculous to a modern society. But is it really as silly as it sounds? And is it really as far from modern life as it seems? Do we not starve ourselves to win approval? How many women and men subject themselves to privation in order to look a certain way? There was a mild controversy a couple of years ago when a diet product or something like that brought out an ad that just had one question on it. It was a bus ad. And it said, is your body summer ready? Is your body summer ready? Now just flip it around. Imagine asking that question of an ancient culture. They'd be like, ready for harvest? Or, like, what, what, would, what exactly does that mean? But when you put on a bus in Sydney 2020, 2021, is your body summer ready? Everyone knows what you're talking about. Are you ready to stand semi-naked before other people and have them judge you? That's what it's asking. See, fasting is making a comeback. Intermittent fasting or various other forms. And sometimes it's for genuine healthy reasons. But many times it's largely for appearance and approval, isn't it? And sadly, many women and increasingly men have a relationship with food that's disordered for this reason. 
We're not that different from ancient cultures. We have more food, but the same heart. And Jesus is saying, don't do it. Don't punish your body. Don't go without food just to win approval from others. In fact, he goes further than that. He says to this culture that he's speaking to, in fact, even try and hide, if you are fasting, try and hide the fact that you're fasting. Try and look healthier and brighter than normal so that no one will ask you about it. So the only person you're doing it for is God himself. Because the natural and proper reward of fasting is meant to be God himself, not the approval of others. But also have to be careful here that we don't mishear what Jesus is saying. When he says do it because your father who is in secret will reward you, have to be clear about what he does not mean. Jesus is not saying if you fast privately, God will approve of you. Every worldview operates on the premise that you must do something in order to reach salvation. So if you take world religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, you have to do something good in order to achieve salvation or enlightenment or whatever is the favored state. And every secular worldview works this way as well. You must shake off everyone else's expectations of you, even society's expectations of you, to find your true and authentic self and live that out fully. But ultimately, it comes down to you. There is something you must do, and you will either pass or you will fail. And if you fail, you'll receive punishment, and if you pass, you'll receive reward. That's how every worldview works except the gospel. It's what theologians call works righteousness. I do good works in order to get salvation. I, I am good, that's righteousness, because of what I do, works. That's works righteousness. But Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by saying this. In Matthew 5.20 he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, in order to be called righteous by God, your level of holiness, of righteousness, must be greater even than the most religious people in their day. That is, God's standard is that high. And of course, that's incredibly depressing because who could ever live that perfectly? But of course, that's the point of the gospel. That's why Jesus is here. He knows that we're sinful, that none of us have lived up to God's standards. None of us have even lived up to our own standards, let alone God's. And that's why Jesus came. He came to live the perfect righteous life and to die the death in our place that there might be a trade, that he is treated like a sinner and that we would be regarded by God as perfect, holy and righteous. See, this is called righteousness by faith. The way of achieving righteousness by works is gone. No one's going to make it. But there is a righteousness by faith. And that's why in Philippians, Paul writes this. Have a look, it'll come up on the screen for him. Philippians 3 and beyond. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul himself was one of these Pharisees that Jesus talked about. And by outward appearance, he looked like the kind of person that if anyone was going to be approved by God, it would be him. He was a Jew of Jews. And even the section just before this, he lists all his credentials as a Jewish person. But when he came to meet Jesus, he realized that all of that was rubbish. 
that not a jot of it could count towards him being claimed righteous, that what he needed was Jesus to die in his place, that he might have a righteousness that comes through faith and not through works. See, Jesus is not saying here that you must fast or do something in order to win God's approval. That's already out the window. That's done with. Now, Jesus is saying if you believe in me, you already have God's irreversible and steadfast love. You don't need to do anything to win approval from others. And you don't need anything to win God's approval. It's been done in Jesus. And so the only remaining motivation to do something is for the sheer joy of drawing nearer to God. See, it's the case that our works contribute nothing to our salvation. You can think of it in this way. Imagine you walked uh, out of this school and there was a, a teen who had chained themselves to the ground. And you ask them why they're doing this, and they say to you, well, uh, we've been learning about space and that kind of thing in school, and I was, I was worried that I might actually float off into space, so I've chained myself here to the playground. And you think, oh, public education, far out. <laughs> but of course you would say to them, well, that's, that's foolish. Like, your, your chains would contribute nothing. The thing that's holding you to the earth is gravity. That's what's going to keep you centered. You don't need any of this other stuff. In fact, you're going to hurt yourself. Don't do this. Gravity is more than sufficient to hold you here. In the same way, fasting can no more secure God's approval than chains can secure you to the earth. It's done. Works righteousness is dead. The gospel is your approval before God has been won by Jesus and we are called to live into that. His love is what holds us to him, not our works. So when Jesus here says, fast for your heavenly Father who is in secret and he will reward you, the reward is not he will then approve you. You already have that. The reward is drawing closer to that, uh, the relationship you have with God, knowing him more deeply. See, the gospel frees us to do these things for the right reason. Once you realize that you can neither add nor subtract to your salvation, the only reason to do it is for the sheer joy of enjoying God. That's why Jesus says, and your Father will reward you in secret. That's the reward. God is the reward. You're not to live as though you were to win God's approval. It's already been done for you. So isn't it the case that when you feel like you're on probation in a relationship, it will pollute every action that you do? I remember years ago, a friend had been in a long-term relationship they broke up. They had that messy thing where they broke up, got back together, broke up, got back together. They finally kind of got back together but the dynamic had completely shifted. For my mate, he knew that he was kind of on probation. This was his last shot. And so everything he did was not necessarily instinctive or authentic. It was always with the thought of, if I do the wrong thing, this might end the relationship. And it just, it created this walking on eggshells kind of dynamic. It was inauthentic, but more than that, it's, it was stressful just to watch, right? From the outside, I felt stressed just watching it happen, unfold before me. And to be clear, the gospel means that you are not to have this kind of relationship with God. We are on constant probation. If I just do one wrong thing, this might be it for us forever. Now, your relationship with God has been secured by Jesus. So you are free to do things for the right reason. Not to win approval from other people or from God, but just to press into what you already have, a relationship with God. Fasting is meant to intensify our love for God as we put aside other pleasures. That is, as we set aside worldly enjoyments to enjoy God more fully. 
And fasting is one way that I can see that even when I miss out on something good, I have everything I need in God. It's a small way of almost rehearsing loss, that we might gain God more and more. That's what Jesus is teaching here. This is why he's correcting the people in the way they're misappropriating fasting. He wants them to know that it's really about relationship with God, not about doing things to win approval from others. So what do we do with this? Well, if you're here and you're not sure where you stand with God, let me ask you this question. Do you have something so good that even if you lost everything else, you would say, I have enough? Do you have something so good that even if you lost everything else, you would be able to say, I have enough? Because that's the claim of the gospel. And the temptation in a city as beautiful as Sydney is to think that this is heaven enough. That this gift from God is enough. Last week I went, I went for a swim at Bondi. And, uh, and as I was coming to the beach, the beach was completely calm. It was beautiful. It was a sunny day. Yes, it was a little bit cold. But other than that, the visual was incredible. And I found myself, I don't know if you've done this, I found myself shaking my head. And I don't know what that means. Is that like, is that, are we, it was just instinctive. I only noticed afterwards that I was doing it. Is it like disbelief that something could be this beautiful? Or what? I don't know. Look, we've all done it. It's a funny instinct. But I just, I found myself shaking my head. And I realized it is, it is an incredibly beautiful city that we live in, even among cities in the world, in terms of wealth, prosperity, safety, but then also natural beauty. I mean, we're in, a, we're in a public school with a view like that, through the scaffolding, of course, and the, you know, the graffiti and the chewing gum and all of that too. But out there is something amazing, right? And it's a temptation to think that this is enough. This is heaven enough. But if that's the creation, imagine how good the creator. And if that's the gift, imagine how good the giver if you don't know this God, you need to know this God. And Jesus made it in every way possible for you to know him even today. He's died to take away your sin and every barrier that would stop you from being in relationship with God. Why wouldn't you draw near to him? And if you want to, we would love to help you with that. That's the whole reason we exist as a church, is to see more and stronger disciples of Jesus. And so if that struck you, then put it on your card later on and we would love to be in touch with you about helping you with this. But if you are a believer, then I want you to challenge, uh, consider Jesus' challenge on fasting. Now before I get to sort of challenging us to fast, I do want to, want to make one note on this. I want to note that if you struggle with disordered eating, that we are here for you. If you want to speak to Jacob or myself or Mel or Anna in this, we would love to help you out with this because it is a difficult struggle. And I want to say before we get to the challenge on fasting, that if, if disordered eating is a struggle for you, I would not recommend fasting. If your relationship to food is actually obscuring the gospel, then fasting won't be a helpful thing. It will probably drive that difficult dynamic even deeper. Because one misunderstanding of disordered eating is that it's in, entirely about approval and, about other, and your appearance. But in reality, many would testify that the driving desire is about being good and in control. When I'm in control of how much intake I have, I'm being good. And when I'm out of control, I'm bad. And really, in the end, it's just works righteousness and it kills. And so we want to say, don't suffer alone. 
We want to help you with this. And so it, it would be, I think, worthwhile considering not fasting for this very reason. And I wanted to start with that word of caution because fasting is not something that you have to do or that you're commanded to do. Even unlike giving to the poor or prayer in the weeks previous, Jesus in other places mentions the mandate to pray and, and to, to give to the poor. But really fasting only comes up a couple of times, which is handy because if you have medical conditions or you can't fast or if you're pregnant, it's not, certainly not the time to fast. So it's not something that's mandated for every Christian. But it is one way of strengthening faith and it's something that Jesus speaks about assuming that it will be a part of the church faith community. And the reason to do it is that we fast in order to give up the gift so that we might gain the giver. We give up worldly enjoyments to go deeper in an enjoyment of God. To say that I can miss out on something and still have everything I need. And fasting can help clear out the distractions of pleasure in order to seek God alone. You could think of it in this way. Last year we went on holidays and on one of the nights, we took the kids out a little bit later to show them the night sky. And if you, if you are a parent, you'll know that oftentimes when you do that, your kids reward you by having a terrible sleep and waking up earlier rather than later. But you do it anyway, right? And then afterwards you think, this is why we can't do nice things. Anyway, we did it. And we took them out at night. And, and as they were looking at the, the sky, and they could see the, an incredible amount of stars, one of them commented... There are so many stars down here. And of course you say, well, that's ridiculous, right? It's, there's only one cosmos. Anyway, no, we didn't say that. But it's interesting, their perspective was there are so many stars down here as though there weren't in Sydney. But of course we know that that's not the truth. The truth is that there are just as many stars, but they're easier to see away from Sydney because there is so much light in Sydney, it's actually hard to see the night sky with any clarity. And of course it's not that light is bad, it just sometimes makes it hard to see the beauty of the night sky. Fasting is meant to be a way of taking away other pleasures that are not bad, just that we might see the glory and the beauty of God more clearly. Food is not bad. It's a good gift from God. It's clear from Scripture that that's the case. But sometimes it can obscure our vision of God. We have so many good things and so many pleasures we can forget that the greatest enjoyment is to know God himself. And so when you strip back these other distractions, you can see God and his glory more clearly. And if you have a big decision coming up, or if you're just feeling like, I've just been flat in my faith for a time, this may be a way to draw near to God and to use this means of grace that he has given his people. And so this week, if you're in a position to do so, why not take a day to fast and to seek God in his word and to pray? To consider the breadth of what Jesus has won for you in winning relationship with God and to make the most of that for a day. And then to post about it on your socials with the hashtag secret life with God. <laughs> now we fast because we know that we don't do it to win the approval of God, but because Christ has done everything to win us relationship with God, that we might know him fully and to draw deeper into that reality. Let me finish with this quote from John Piper. He says, We fast because we're hungry for God's word and God's spirit in our lives. 
We fast because we long for God's glory to resound in the church and God's praise to resound among the nations. We fast because we yearn for God's Son to return and God's kingdom to come. Ultimately, we fast simply because we want God more than we want anything this world has to offer us. Let's pray that he'd do a deep work in our hearts. Father, we praise you that you are infinitely good. That in you are pleasures forevermore, as it says in your word. May we be a church that hear your call in Scripture to taste and see that the Lord is good and to know it. To be able to say like Paul that we consider all things as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord in whom is my righteousness and my salvation. And Father, we pray that we do this for the sake of your holy name alone, not for approval of others not in the deceit that we can somehow win your approval, but just to draw deeper into the truth that you love us and know us, that we might honor you with all we have. We pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.